Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 133. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And I'm so glad to be talking to you about a new film by Paul Thomas Anderson. We've never talked about a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Actually, when his Netflix Tom York music oh, yeah. video came out, we were very scornful. And I, True. I, I I don't remember what I said in that, but I remember being mad at uh, not enjoying it and being like, did he fall off? You Damn, know? we were in our harshest era back then. You yeah, know? I mean, <laughs> vitriol spewing at anyone you're a young critic you're just looking for blood yeah <laughs> and i know in our best of the decade uh, episode we did definitely sing the praises of inherent vice quite a bit and probably the master as well uh but you know what a new dawn has risen and he has a new film no that just sounded like i don't know that trad racism kind of thing <laughs> and finally a movie <laughs> uh, where white boys can be white boys <laughs> Well, actually, two movies, because this is extended oh, trip, and it is a double feature. Uh, our double feature this week is the new film by Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza, and the newest film by Quentin Tarantino, 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, we actually talked about that film, too, upon its release in a middle segment. Uh, I remember that was one of our very first episodes when we talked about Death Proof and Metropolitan by Whit Stillman. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good double feature. That was a very fun <laughs> episode. And it was kind of like a re-sparked my love affair with old Quentin, who I thought maybe I had outgrown. And then Death Proof reeled me right back in to, his, to the throes of his passionate love affair with cinema. <laughs> uh, yeah, same. I mean, also, well, I just want to get out of like get out ahead of this one first and i should we should say some platitudes about respecting women and whatnot because like i don't i know we're gonna go on long bro rants in this but look there there's room for chicks here too okay (laughs) yeah i'm sure they're flocking (laughs) flocking to listen to this uh so we're gonna start with the first of our two chick flicks uh licorice pizza (laughs) the new film by paul thomas anderson starring alana haim and cooper hoffman now you look at the last few films or really the entire career of anderson you see big bright movie stars Mark Wahlberg, John C. Riley, Adam Sandler, Daniel Day-Lewis, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, uh, who's this? Joaquin Phoenix, you know. Paul Dano. Yeah, and then you see this cast, <laughs> at least the top-billed actors, and you think, what? what is this guy trying to pull off here? And then you're like, oh, Sean, oh, I'll see the movie Sean Penn's in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's the real reason they're rolling out to this one. Bradley Cooper. Bradley you know, Cooper. Yeah. yeah, it's like, I liked Flag Day, so I'll, I think I'll check out a licorice pizza. <laughs> As a fan of Flag Day and uh, Star is Born 2018. Yeah. Oh, burnt. Yeah. Because this film actually does have a connection to A Star is Born 2018. Yeah. As Bradley Cooper in this film plays uh, film producer uh, and former hair stylist John Peters and John Peters was the producer of the 70s version of A Star is Born starring his then girlfriend Barbara Streisand 
And uh, he also was credited as a producer because he produced that film. He has a credit on Bradley Cooper's 2018 A Star is Born. But of course, his PGA ranking was stripped from him and Bradley Cooper had to kind of denounce it because he was unaware of the sexual harassment allegations levied against one John Peters. And I think that is a good way to get into kind of like not just what these films are all about, but yeah. the the darker underbelly beneath the bright, sunshining, good Southern California vibes that are on the surface of these movies. These are good time... Mo- I almost said good time Charlies. <laughs> <laughs> these movies are a couple of good time but Charlies. as we know about good time Charlies, they get the blues. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even Charlies get the blues. Um... So, yeah, these are films that, you know, take us back to the late 60s and early 70s, Southern California, uh, Hollywood and the San Fernando Valley, respectively, and a little bit of the San Fernando Valley in Tarantino's film as well. But there's, you know, some, you know... um, melancholy and some thorniness and some darkness present in both of these films too that I think is very easy to overlook but once you get into that darkness I think makes them both more complete pictures am I wrong no not <laughs> wrong at all I mean like with licorice uh, pizza <laughs> I raised I raised my hand to intervene actually uh no JT go I'm sorry. <laughs> um yeah with licorice pizza I feel like the critique I don't know, feels more overt there. I mean, especially like the way, um, I don't know, the the John Peters scene in particular, like that really comes across, but there's also anti-Semitism and uh, other types of racism in this, sexism that like, I don't know, at points like, obviously PTA is playing like some of these things for laughs because of how like sort of ridiculous and kind of outdated it is. But also, I don't know, it's pretty fucked up and disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know what licorice pizza is, it's the uh, whirlwind relationship, uh, friendship, and maybe a little more of uh, Gary Valentine, played by Cooper Hoffman, the son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Alana Haim. So he is a child actor and hustler, and she is a... uh, 25-year-old woman who works at a children's photography company. They meet one day uh, as she is working his, you know, school photo day, and their relationship begins. And you see all these characters come in and out of the film, and they affect their relationship and the choices that these two main characters make throughout the movie. And it's just a, uh, a, a good old comedy time. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, these movies pair so well together because they like have kind of like a a similar thing going on where they're both kind of uh, very interested in like Hollywood mythology or whatever. And, you know, with Licorice Pizza, we're kind of more on, on the outskirts, you know, even even though I guess characters in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are basically, they're, they're roaming towards the outskirts. But it is like, I feel like what they kind of come to different conclusions about the mythology, like something about once upon a time of hollow really respects that mythology. And, uh, and I think maybe that's why there's some certain people, maybe like a uh, Richard Brody or someone has a problem with it where there's like licorice pizza. There's always like a skepticism, you know, that like this town's full of hustlers and, you know, and Gary mm-hmm. Valentine's one of them, you know what I mean? And we see this, you know, through, you know, the various business 
businesses he opens or like just the characters um, like Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper, both just like kind of like scuzzy dudes, mm-hmm. you know, using their status and whatnot. So it's, uh, I, I don't know, they both kind of have uh, like, a, they're both viewing, you know, these things kind of with great interest, but like I, I, the different conclusions, I mean, maybe even works better to the, the time period or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, Licorice Pizza, the invocation of the time period and like the way that historical events are integrated is so interesting, of course. And uh, I don't know, it's like, I it, it opens the very first scene on a cherry bomb in a boy's room toilet. Uh, before the opening flirtation meet cute and it's like immediately we know that paul thomas anderson isn't aiming for his usual lofty heights but it kind of inverts uh my usual maxim that even the most self-serious psychologically probing pta movies can't help but be hilarious because this 70s valley homecoming comedy can't help but be this like slyly dense character study that uses its comedic caricature supporting cast and the socioeconomic topography to like tease out this really complicated and kind of towering film like the ones he's been making for decades it's like uh you know it's yeah it's a reversal of what he's usually doing and it ends up being just as major as his other films yeah and it's it's i think like uh kind of the the sweepingness of it too it, it is like there's something more kind of casual about the movie just because there isn't i, I don't know you, you think of some other characters in pta movies you know something like there will be blood or whatever there's kind of these kind of uh, grand sentiments where it's like these characters are basically just kind of scrambling to you know find where they they mm-hmm. fit in necessarily and the whole movie kind of uh takes its lead from that and you know that's i mean and i think that's why the kind of the central dynamic between like uh cooper hoffman and alana Haim is so interesting you know because gary valentine you know he's a very like seems like you know he's a go-getter or whatever seems like you know like uh it seems like he's got an idea in hand but it's really just like until it fails and then you know we're on to the next idea whereas like the Haim character, you know, someone who's kind of uh, aimless, you know, kind of going through life and them kind of both having their own searches kind of makes, you know, the age gap work or whatever, <laughs> you know, being a, a precocious kid and kind of, you know, being successful at it, you know, for Gary kind of like, uh, I don't know, it makes it a dynamic that on paper seems like it wouldn't work. It makes it believable. The way it plays with the notion of both characters is like childish, I think really Mm -hmm. digs out and like, I don't know, there's so much depth there that occurs because there are moments where it's like, you see Gary as this like, Oh, like you feel like he's in his twenties or he's like put together enough as a kid. But then there are other moments where he's like, fucking his friends in the ass with a gas can like not (laughs) literally but like just doing it as a bit and uh like you're like oh this he's like 15 and uh same thing with like alana's character where it's just like she will be like getting like stoned with her sister like sort of questioning like if like what she's doing with gary is weird or it's like is it strange to be around them and like will be more reflective especially in the the later half after the um the the car chase through mm-hmm. the hills um she like ha- is trying to come into her own as like an adult and that interplay there of them both being like childish and but like a little bit more mature at points 
I don't know, really makes it work. And yeah. I think that like in general, it's just so complicated. It makes you feel weird ways about their dynamic. Yeah, and it, it's much like Phantom Thread, where the, uh, I guess you would say, problematic age gap relationship dynamics are upended completely of what you would expect from them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Phantom Thread, you have this, like, uh, incredibly successful, lofty dressmaker who picks up a waitress uh, <laughs> like at breakfast one day and is like, yeah, you're going to be my muse now, you know? But obviously, uh, the power dynamic there is reversed in a way that, like, completely informs the whole movie. Uh, once you get to that third act, you know, everything is kind of... Uh, your, or at least your perception of everything about their relationship is upended. And then in this movie, uh, you know, you on paper, it's like a 25-year-old who, you know, she's still living with family, but at least has a job. Uh, and then this 15-year-old boy, you know, who she's literally his chaperone. She's like his babysitter for a lot of it. Uh, and obviously the relationship, it's not just reversed, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And then as you guys have said, you know, her kind of searching for what her purpose is, I think that especially in the last, you know, maybe 45 minutes or so makes it so much more complicated and also invokes the, as I said, like the, the socioeconomic topography of the time. It, It really starts when the gas crisis, uh, hits them. And of course, they're, you know, selling waterbeds that are made out of vinyl. So they can't, you know, they're going to go out of business. And uh, they, I think it was in, you know, I, I read two really good reviews. Uh, Adam Naiman and Mark Ash both wrote really good reviews of this. I forgot which one pointed this out. But when she goes into politics, you know, with a seemingly progressive candidate played by Benny Safdie, that's her pivot. And his is just to move on to the next capitalist scheme. You know, mm-hmm. he is just like he's there to help her with the politician. But he's like slyly being, you know, literally a capitalist finding out that pinball is going to become legal again he's like well i'm gonna buy some fucking pinball machines you know (laughs) and uh, i think that diversion of their two routes is so great and you know it's not like they're splitting off at that time it's just that their relationship becomes that much more complicated for the third act yeah and then like how kind of you know the Haim character kind of challenges you know the valentine's like depth you know, basically being like, you're kind of like a shallow person by, you know, you don't care about the world or whatever. But, it, and then it's like, at the same time, yeah. she also like in that same scene is just like, and you'll never be as cool as me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, it's kind of conflating, you know, the personal and the political as a lot of people do and kind of, you know, a, a search for purpose. And same with like kind of Gary and his like, uh, capitalist schemes, his, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 1930s James Cagney uh, <laughs> scrambling around town trying to make a sale uh, type setup he's got going there and uh, I it is just kind of how these characters are I don't know I, I like the kind of combative nature of their relationship for the most of the time it's them kind of uh, you know you want a relationship where you know you and your girl are challenging each other trying to get you one up to the next level and it's very know, true that's what's going yeah. on here this is a big like male motivation movie for sure <laughs> absolutely i can't wait for male soul to make some memes out of this one <laughs> i hope it could catch on like that you know uh so we haven't really talked about the aesthetic qualities of the mm-hmm. film which i think are really like 
masterfully understated almost you know like that that meat cute of them in line is so incredible where there's just hundreds of kids and where there's just these long tracking takes of gary flirting with alana you know just trying to get her to go to dinner with him and uh, i don't know the long takes don't necessarily call attention to themselves just like this film in generally doesn't you know call attention to itself as being a grand masterpiece the way that you might say the master or there will be blood does Mm -hmm. uh, or do rather um but the use of long take in this film is both for you know creating tension and for heightening comedy in a really interesting way but of course there's also classic like shot reverse shot comedy and i don't know just the he, he's back to using uh anamorphic lenses here shooting in 2.35 or 9 or whatever and i just love the compositions here he's you know rather than using height the way he did in the master the uh the outstretched horizontality of the frame here is used masterfully uh the, there's just like so many great setups and the the few times that he g- does go in for a true close up here are just like stellar like when he when gary uh goes to the waterbed uh place for the first <laughs> oh time oh my god and we just like get that like <clears throat> piercing close-up of the uh, saleswoman at the waterbed place or like at the mattress place I guess that's introducing him to waterbeds just like the seduction in that close-up is so amazing and he just eases into this crazy reverse shot of close-ups where or shot reverse shot of close-ups where uh, Gary's laying on the bed and she's just like towering over him <laughs> and she's upside down in the frame and then you get the crazy hippie played by Leonardo DiCaprio's father really? uh, in the background just like far out man <laughs> <laughs> no yeah the long takes here feel really fluid and I feel like it's just kind of like simple in a way yeah. where it's just like the, for the most part some of yeah, them are some, incredibly yeah. like slyly complicated True. but I guess like the like the intellectual yeah. uh, like uh, use of them or whatever is very simple in that it's just like you, you know when you uh, you know hold a, a take for longer it, it kind of there's more of an intimacy to that like kind of like when they walk down uh, like the night street you know mm-hmm. it's a very slight scene you know what I mean that does you know doesn't really uh, it's not, you know, like a grand scene in the scale of the movie, but just kind of like these small um, moments kind of uh, accentuated with these long takes really just, you know, sells them for me. And like, I feel like since like this movie kind of like, you know, you mentioning the waterbed stuff, it's like it's one of my favorite qualities of like a, a good director. And I feel like you kind of have to have a certain amount of movies under your belt to even like kind of do this. But like, you know, this movie kind of follows its nose and kind of, in kind of a sense, you know what I mean? It kind of goes where it wants to. And like you said, picks, uh, you know, interesting spots like with like the gas crisis or was the wax guy was or wax or whatever yeah. was he he was like a real guy or something i yeah, did not no. look into this i okay. don't think so <laughs> okay well never mind there but um just like using like i don't know just well i think that's interesting yeah. though the 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 confluence of like reality and like real mm-hmm. history and fiction here yeah definitely yeah exactly and like kind of like i don't know with like kind of you know with the episodic structure of kind of like uh, like the introduction of a new character and them like kind of leaving, you know, after, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of them. It just, I don't know. It's the structure is very interesting. Kind of Anderson just uh, knows how to pinpoint like this relationship, you know, and in ways, you know, a lot of other people wouldn't exactly approach it. 
And yeah, the to speak on that episodic structure, you just like get these supporting characters who come in, steal the show for a couple minutes, and always change the dynamic between Gary and Alana. Like every single time a new character is introduced, it's not just because they're gonna be really funny, which they always are somehow. <laughs> uh, like starting with who, who's the kid? Oh, Skylar Gizondo, Gizondo, uh, whatever, oh, however he you say his fucking name. Rules. As so Lance, good. another child actor here. Who that scene is just so incredible because first you get Gary flirting with the stewardess on the airplane, yeah. uh, doing what he does a few times in this movie, ordering two cokes, always like one for the lady as well, you know, and uh, just flirting with her so like for him he thinks effortlessly and she is just like embarrassed for him almost mm, yeah. uh, but still playing along and smiling big but then that kid comes along and starts flirting with Alana and Gary just stone faces just like so hard <laughs> he's so visibly pissed off at that moment it's great and it's yeah it's 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 a long line of like kind of uh people who are like fraudulent in one way yeah. or another and like I love him because it's like the most you know we got, you know, we got uh, William Holden, who's kind of like a washed up drunk. And then, you know, Brad Cooper, you know, running around town. Or I should say John Peters, you know, just wrecking havoc where it's like this, you know, this guy's fraudulence is that he's just kind of like a corny young dude or yeah. whatever that, you know, uh, really into like his own atheism and stuff like that. <laughs> but it, it was just funny, like, uh, like just all the flirtations and kind of like, I don't know, him using like his status and whatnot is just, it's super funny just to see like, especially since it's like, you know, this, this kid doesn't look that much older than Gary either, mm-hmm. which is like a funny part of it too. Like it's, they must be somewhat, I mean, he's definitely, I guess, older. I, I don't know if that address, but it's like, uh, I, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Lance, the character of Lance, the scene where he goes over for the Shabbat and refuses uh, to say the blessing over the hala because he is atheist despite being Jewish is like, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people like me who were, you know, born into Judaism and had their edgy atheist teen phase. Uh, That scene hit very close to home for me Uh, on top of this just being filled to the brim with San Fernando Valley locations that I frequented as a child. You know, you get Cupid's hot dogs in like the third scene of the movie where I would go all the time with my dad and uh, you get the uh, Van Nuys par three golf course where uh, Sean Penn's uh, Jack Holden stand in for William Holden character jumps his motorcycle over, <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> over a sand trap and you know, that motorcycle scene, of course, is one of the many times where you get the great visual motif of this, of uh, just a tracking shot of one of the two leads running after the other one. And that is just repeated throughout this film. And it's a very basic visual scheme, but it works so well, man. Yeah, I mean, it just a, it, it's, a, it's a classic, you know, elixir, but it's, you know, it's just uh, inherently kind of uh, romantic and it, you know, kind of works with kind of, um, a lot of the simplistic charm of this movie. Okay. And speaking of a simplistic charm, man, like that one, that scene in particular where, you know, everyone's, you know, gassing up William Holden's character, or the William Holden stand-in character, Tom Waits is his director. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to restage this stunt that he did in this, like, Korean war drama. <laughs> and uh, they... <laughs> He, like, orders a bunch of, like, gas from the kitchen and shit Mm -hmm. like that. And, uh, you know, uh, Alana falls off the back of his motorcycle uh, and... You know, they're they're the main couple is reunited, and then "Let Me Roll It" by Paul McCartney and Wings comes on the soundtrack, and it's just like, 
oh my god the the simplicity of just using a great needle drop to communicate feeling in movies anderson has been great at since the beginning of his career and it just shows that he's like not above it here you know like Mm -hmm. he's kind of straight away from it in some of his later movies obviously inherent vice has the incredible neil young needle drops but like here it's just like oh my god one of my favorites in his career and i mean the way he uses that to like emphasize the gesture because that leads into them they just like crash at the uh waterbed place <laughs> and gary's very tempted to touch her breast <laughs> <laughs> hover hand little hover hand action yeah and it's just like <laughs> not illegal <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> Uh, Technically not doing. Look, nothing I, in this movie is illegal. Yeah, uh, 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 uh. Um, but yeah, no, it's like it's little like he emphasizes and builds up moments like that where it's like I don't like I think that scene is like very beautiful, but also funny and like weirdly perverse. It's just mm-hmm. there's so many like he's doing simple things so well, and there's a richness to the characters and the world where it's just like. I don't know. I could see like, I don't know, hundreds of different readings yeah. of like the meaning yeah. of that scene. And it's just because there's a, I don't know, so much there. Yeah. And like reading like some of the harsher criticism of this movie, which are like, I don't know, like it's it didn't, didn't, it's did not come from reputable sources. I'm sure there's smart people who dislike uh-huh. this movie, but, um, like you know people say like oh you never get the like interiority of the characters which is like a very like it's a hilarious thing to say about a paul thomas yeah yeah Yeah. but it's like also it's like i feel like it's just through small moments or whatever you get everything that you need you know kind of brief moments within their home life you know kind of gary watching the tv with his brother and then his brother you know repeating that line from the tv and he just like gets up and leaves you know you know it's it's (laughs) and then you know vice versa with uh the Alana Haim character, you know, and all the times where she's, you know, walking past like uh, her family watching TV on the couch and, you know, she's the one who, you know, doesn't chill out and she's in her room alone. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, yeah, there's no, you know, everything else, you know, that you could get from that. It's left unsaid because it does, you know, you could see it in their actions and, you know, how they react to things. But like the small moments you get there, I think, tell us all we need to know. I mean, like there's just a richness of character in like every aesthetic decision Mm -hmm. and detail about them where it's like you could say to some extent that a lot of the like side character characters are more like caricatures but like someone like when lance first rolls up on the plane you can almost know (laughs) everything about him by like the baby blue turtleneck he's wearing (laughs) and just even the decision where it's like he's clearly like trying to like a flirt would like get Alana's attention and he like takes off his sweater and just like unbuttons one button on his shirt on the plane. It's just like, it's all there in those little fucking details. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on this one before we wrap it on up and move on to our second film? Uh, you know, I, I might need to cycle through some of his films and his filmography again, but this is, this is my current favorite PTA. Like wow. I really, I really was struck by this. Um, in a way, and I think it's, I mean, I think we've kind of touched on it, but this movie's hilarious. Like this movie's yeah. super funny. It's, there's, it's rarely not ever, you know, it's rarely not ever unfunny. Like literally every single character, uh, you know, moment or whatever, like there's some, some humor to it. And yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a movie I see myself watching a lot, a lot of times over again. So yeah, let's give that five bullets. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm going five bullets as well. 
I mean, I feel like something you hit on, Eddie, in your like like letterbox review of this, like uh, getting like an initial reaction to it, is just like I'd love this right away, and like I it like connected immediately. Where it's something like Inherent Vice, which is probably like now my second favorite Anderson. Like I had to really unlock that and kind of like uh, work at that, and I think that was like part of the pleasure of it. But here like the surface level joy of just like hanging out in this world and like spending time with these characters that are so like richly crafted like that alone like just made it like a thrilling experience but there's so much underneath the surface and like so many little details of like I don't know period uh um period analysis and also uh Fuck, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but it's okay. there's a, I don't know, a whole lot to love and a whole lot to try and wrap your brain around. Uh, I am also going to give this one five bullets. Yeah, I I adore this movie. Um, you know, I'm not going to rank his filmography. You, you got to watch those movies like four or five times. Got to give I mean, it some years. I gave it the caveat. Know? I gave yeah. it the caveat. Uh, but it's, it's just amazing. I don't know. It just... On a personal level, as I said earlier, there's a lot that I was just like pointing at the screen like a character in the second movie we're going to talk about watching his episode of FBI. <laughs> uh, but the, the it's just like such a well-crafted and almost understated film and just so hilarious. As you said, Malcolm, it's always being funny uh, and like... Um, an understated MVP comedically is uh, Alana Haim's father here, yeah. who is just, he only has a handful of lines, but every one is fucking killer. You know, it's re- really funny when like she comes home after like the first date with Gary and like, he's just shooting hoops outside. Yeah. The house. <laughs> that, that cracks me up to know it. Like very small, but it's like, yeah, the movie's full of small stuff like that. Exactly. Make you chuckle. Exactly. <laughs> uh, We'll be right back, chuckling away on extended clips. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair I'm at the girl I'm marry one day. But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady. But her friend is nowhere to be seen So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. And we're back on Extended Clip. It's everybody's favorite segment. And we're only doing this segment a few more times, so I know how much you guys love this segment. Mm -hmm. Cherish the segment. Another Money Malcolm. (laughs) (laughs) It's Malcolm in the middle. Life is unfair. Malcolm, it's been almost two weeks since we recorded. I, I assume you've watched at least one noteworthy movie in the meantime. <laughs> no, you know me. I'm always uh, keeping my eye for noteworthy things, and there's a lot of noteworthy movies, so I've been watching a lot of them. Um, I guess that's not true. I haven't been watching that many. But what I did see, I saw a new release. I saw Whoa. something new. Okay. Um, but it, <laughs> it tackles something as old as time. It's uh, Benedetta by uh, Paul Verhoeven. And I, I quite like this movie. And like, um, I think this is like, it's it's like kind of a movie I feel like Verhoeven can kind of do in his sleep almost. Mm-hmm. But there there are like certain aspects about this that do kind of make it stand out, even like from his filmography or whatever, you know, you know, I think our people already know it's like a lesbian nun movie and you got, you got plenty of that. You got sex scenes, you know, I, I actually, I wanted to. 
I was the first guy to say that there aren't sex scenes in movies anymore. I, w- I was kind of the first person to say that, so I wanted to get ahead of that. I'll receive all the credit for that take. Um, so you know, I've been seeing it a lot. But uh, uh, Paul, like, I, it's about like this, you know, Benedetta, the main character. She's you know someone who's been kind of Christ-like her whole life. You know, uh, wanted to be a nun from very young, and uh, eventually. She kind of, with the help of her father's uh, money, I guess, um, kind of saves this woman who's being abused by her father and brothers being raped, basically, and, uh, you know, lets her join the convent. This woman, uh, you know, she's a little bit uh, devious and, take, you know, kind of gets... Uh, Gets the freak. Yeah, she's from less. Uh, she's from less high means. So True, she's yeah. down and dirty and poor. She's down and crapping dirty. in that one scene. Yeah, we get a nice scene where they they crap together and stuff. <laughs> well, like you that. didn't tell me that I would love this movie. <laughs> you know, you got lesbians, nuns. It's like fine, whatever. Those are parts of life you have to accept. But crapping, I'll go see this. And it, it it kind of plays with like the the stuff that like uh, it kind of a classic nun joke that like nuns is like. Uh, jesus's wife basically and then benedetta kind of takes that sentiment to heart and keeps having visions i guess where you know jesus you know she's being saved by jesus you know jesus is like take your panties off stuff like that. those are so (laughs) fucking funny no yeah that's and that those sequences are kind of the that stands out the most in the movie whether they're like you know at the start they're kind of positive and then eventually they turn you know they're very like violent they feel like something you'd see in like a um, I don't know. Just like the 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 violence in them is just kind of it really pops out in this movie. It just like because I feel like style wise, this felt like I don't want to say like Black Book. Black Book feels more restrained than like some of the big like American Verhoeven movies True. where he's like incredibly in your face about it. But this feels like a meshing together of like the more subdued style of black book with just like those moments where it's like CGI, like yeah. superhero Jesus coming in <laughs> through like cutting up snakes, like feels like the, the American Verhoeven work. And it's just really fun to like, I don't know, see those two come together. And I do have to say, this was one of like, in terms of like people in the audience, I think I hated everyone there besides the people I was with. <laughs> like literally the the biggest dose of art house laughter I've gotten in a while. Oh jeez. And um but I think what's great about Verhoeven is that he could kind of upend that stuff. You know what I mean? He could be nasty enough or you know there's some I mean something like that that nun suicide those like brief that brief minute like that was actually pretty affecting in a way yeah. that like you know you wouldn't expect you know that character of her magnitude to be treated with. I don't know. He's He'll find a way to kind of uh, upend art house laughter, which is mm. good to see from a, an old master. And uh, also, I kind of like that this is like, you know, uh, some nuns in like a castle, kind of like a Jess Franco vibe where it's like we kind of or just like a lot of like uh, erotic type movies from like 70s and 80s. So it's like we got one big location. Let's shoot the fuck out of this and, uh, you know, have have fun with that. And uh yeah, I, lo- I mean, it does feel like they're in like a dungeon rather than like a mm-hmm. a nice place too, which is fun. So yeah, you know, if you're if you're a fan of Big Paul V, I, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's misstepping at all. I think he's still got it. Nice, that's good to hear. Yeah, JT. Um, yeah, I've also uh, been rolling out to new movies quite a bit. You got to stay current. You got to hear finger on the pulse. Finger on the pulse. 
And boy, was my finger on the pulse when I saw another work from another old master, House of Gucci by Ridley Scott. <laughs> this podcast's favorite director. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll hold my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't like... Uh, I. I feel like it's annoying to like just like it's annoying to shit on him all the time, yeah. but like well, he's pretty it. bad. Um, and hey, I I'm not going to talk about it, but I rewatched Blade Runner this week. Great movie. I didn't really like it the first time yeah. I watched it because I watched the theatrical cut. Finally got that final cut. Fucking great, man. Yeah, anyway, he's, go he's on. five for thirty-three. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but. I don't know. I was suckered yet again by the media class into rolling out for. I don't. Th I don't even think the media class responded well to this. No, one. Yeah. no. The media class tricked me, and I saw the last duel, uh, which I didn't really like. Um, but then I saw House of Gucci, which is a solid. A-okay in my book. Yeah. And it's like, I like it because of how much of a fucking mess it is. It's like a lot of people have given it like mob movie like comparisons and i i get that because it's like a, a true crime like story mm -hmm. in fucking italy like i don't know just getting together all yeah. that shit but i don't know at points it like feels like it's playing into like a really campy vibe something i always love in movies is like bad music choices and there are a lot of like <laughs> weird like 80s like kind of songs thrown in here um and like lady gaga is really hot and ridley scott knows that like the first mm -hmm. uh big uh like sort of entrance we get to the character is like she's from uh like a poor family but like her dad still has like a like a construction business and you, we see her like rolling <laughs> up and like the way the camera like focuses in on her ass really did nice. a lot for me i was Honestly, pretty pretty titillated <laughs> in the theater. Okay, calm down. No, it was it was a way. I feel like I'm a man that watches a lot of smut and like weird things and whatnot. But I was taken aback by how. Uh, we'll talk about this off mic. Some, but some images <laughs> just really strike you. I get exactly, it, huh? exactly. Necessary images. Yeah, as Robert Bresson would say. Um, and Adam Driver's hair looks a lot like mine in that movie. So it's just like I see him. <laughs> from the back and it's okay. just like you put yourself right. in there it's like hey man <laughs> so Calm JT down. liked this movie for as, very as, like, as, as a, if you look kind of like Adam Driver you can very easily sublimate a sexual fantasy where you fuck Lady Gaga into this um, I'm just gonna say I thought Last Duel was a good movie yeah yeah didn't catch it. I <laughs> I know JT slandered it on this podcast. But let's no, have it. I wait, mean, quick debate. Let's go. You two. No, I'm just kidding. Last, <laughs> last duel. Let's go. <laughs> but no, like I think last duel had parts. I like it's not something that's like dog shit terrible. There were parts I like. It mostly just bored me. And this is like something that is like I think the worst parts of this are more actively bad than the last duel. Mm -hmm. Like you get a terrible Jared Leto performance that is just like in, an extremely unnecessary side character, but you get Jeremy Irons and Al Pacino too. And they're just chopping it up, having a fun time and just tonally all over the place and weird. 
Um, and I was able to tap into that. Like, it moves a lot faster than Last Duel. I mean, still, like, too fucking long of a movie than this needed to be. Um, but I had a lot of fun with it. Okay. For some reasons, yeah. others might not, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, here's 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 fellas. Here's, make sure the screening isn't crowded. True. At this one. So you All can right. put your finger on the pulse. But uh, uh, now here's here's the truth. Here's I got a little okay, harsh <laughs> harsh truth about Ridley Scott fans. You know what I mean? They don't even like his movies that much. I mean, they really don't. That you know, you hear people talk about him. It's like, oh yeah, this is a good like three star movie. It's like, pal. I mean. There's a lot of three-star movies out there. I don't know why Ridley's getting the red carpet treatment, you know, just because he's like, oh, the fuck Marvel movies. Dude's fucking geriatric, dude. He'll he'll say he'll say fuck anything at this point. Now I'm sure he's got some good movies, all that stuff, but it's just uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think people know where I stand on this, so I don't need to. I think delve, I do. delve in, you know, any further. But I think, I think it is worth saying that he's only made like three movies <laughs> under two hours in his whole career. <laughs> I mean, he's like he has a pretty long leash. He could pretty much do what seems like whatever he wants. Yeah, and the which stuff, is funny because so many of his movies have like director's cuts and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's like mm-hmm. the theatrical cuts are all pretty bloated anyway. Yeah, and I like you know, I've only seen a handful of his movies, but mm-hmm. yeah. Regardless, I also watched a movie this week. Nice. Uh, I watched The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the 2011 film by David Fincher. And I actually watched the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo film a few years back and disliked it so much that I thought even David Fincher can't make me like this. I was fucking wrong. David Fincher knocked this out of the park. If you're interested in the second half of David Fincher's career uh, in terms of his... Uh, digital cinematography and the use of digital textures and, uh, you know, the procedural side kind of taking over the nasty side. Uh, Despite the fact that this and stuff like Gone Girl still has quite a bit of nastiness in it, um, you will love this film just as much as I did. It is a icy, cold movie starring uh, Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara, and it is like two dual investigations almost for the first hour uh in a way it's like daniel craig starting his investigation and for the first hour it's cross-cutting between him and rooney mara's character going through her life before they team up to complete this investigation uh that christopher Plummer sends them on into his own twisted family (laughs) and uh it's man like the script probably, I, I could make some complaints about it, but I think the way that this movie operates is just like a well-oiled machine, man. The way that the cross-cutting works, the way that each scene individually is paced out, uh, the pacing on the whole is fucking ludicrous. This is like a two-hour and 40-minute movie that feels closer to 100 minutes, you know? This is just like a miracle of pacing and just a bold experiment in, as I said, ice-cold digital cinematography and uh, wonderful performances all around. And yeah, I, I don't know. The location work is stellar. The digital trickery is just like so funny to think about because there's it, it, from Zodiac onward, and maybe before too. I haven't seen Panic Room to be honest, uh, mm-hmm. but from Zodiac onward, there's so many funny things that like when you look at the behind the scenes, you're like, 
did he really need to cut any did he really need to cut those corners with digital there it's almost like he's just showing off the film purists like mm-hmm, hey you know mm-hmm. you didn't need to do that real you know you could have faked that and it's so funny <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because so much of this film is like digital researching and stuff like that and blowing up film scans uh, on photoshop and stuff like that that it becomes kind of a metatextual thing, all of the digital post-processing that's involved in the aesthetic of the movie and like the CG snowfall that comes in towards the end. It's like ridiculous. (laughs) And just like, I, I don't know, man, it's, Honestly, right away, top three, if not two, Fincher for me. And I've been going through a little Fincher sans lately, so that is not a light statement. Like, he is becoming mm-hmm. one of my favorite kind of like studio ready directors uh, that's working today. So, you know, after Gone Girl, it's pretty much like this and Zodiac, which is a very high fucking compliment. I need to watch this because, yeah, I, I mean, I've always thought Fincher, especially, you know, in his more recent, I guess, Mank excluded. Um, it, it doesn't exist. Mank, well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I'm hoping, I'm hoping Fincher could bounce. Back. And of course, we know he's talented, but yeah. we need we need that. Make well, his bounce next back. one is like yeah. a, a pulpy murder movie. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. I Let's can't fucking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I still need to watch the series he did too, Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Oh yeah. I, you know, I don't. Uh, did he do the whole? Th- did he? I know he was involved yeah. in the whole thing. It's not like House of Cards where he just like shot the pilot. And yeah. Because House of Cards, I know he he shot the pilot of that, and then the aesthetic of the show was kind of modeled after his directed episode, or maybe he did a few episodes, but like that show is stupid as fuck obviously yeah. uh but it, it it does it is a testament to his ability to stylize trashy scripts because house of cards first couple episodes i was fucking reeled in no matter how ludicrously stupid that show is <laughs> like he and how fucking ludicrous kevin spacey's performance is obviously <laughs> uh look hindsight's 2020 but that show is fucking stupid uh <laughs> Uh, but his, his ability to stylize the trashiest and stupidest material is like beyond comparison. I mean, it just goes to show how boring the original Dragon Tattoo movie is mm-hmm. uh, and how grown worthy it is and how incredible this film is. But we'll be right back on Extended Clip to talk about someone who writes their own scripts. And we're back on Extended Clip to talk about a movie that I think enriched our bond as three Mm -hmm. friends early on in the podcast when this movie came out. Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. Actually, no, sorry. Once Upon a Time in, dot, 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 Hollywood. Uh, I thought it was Once Upon. It was Once, it's Once Upon a Time, then, dot, dot, dot. In Hollywood. Yeah, but we have the poster framed up here in room G of the Jean-Luc oh, Godard so Kyle Studio. And the ellipsis is after in on the poster, which I, is very strange. Once upon, I think it's once upon uh, dot, 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 time in Hollywood. Once upon a time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. Um, this is a film of excesses. Uh, this is a film about 
film, uh, just as <laughs> <Yeah>. Inglorious <laughs> Bastards was, but even further down the rabbit hole of you know his obsession with cinema being kind of the project of his whole career here comes to a head as he makes a film about the hollywood studio system in decline being represented by a fading star rick dalton played by uh, leonardo dicaprio and his former stuntman and pretty much his gopher brad pitt as cliff booth meanwhile Next door to Rick Dalton, we have Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, and her husband, Roman Polanski. Uh, and if you know anything about Hollywood history, or you're a true crime junkie, you know that 1969 is a very scary time for the starlet and her perverted, well, more than perverted, her terrible person husband. Yeah. Uh, and, and that terrible time is inflicted upon them by Charles Manson, whose family is hanging out at a relic of the Hollywood system, Spawn Movie Ranch, out in Chatsworth, California. Uh, hey, that's pretty close by to uh, Once Upon or Once Upon a Time in Licorice Pizza Land. In uh, fact, uh, uh, uh. there were some Licorice Pizza locations in Chatsworth, California, right by the old Spawn Movie Ranch. And to further connections, uh, to further the connections of these movies, we also have Jay Sebring as a character in this movie, played wonderfully by Emil Hirsch, one of the great kind of a goofy understated performances of this movie emile hirsch's protege went on to teach john peters how to cut hair Damn. in the jc bring style so you know bringing one character from one film to the next uh is jc bring in this film <laughs> so shout out to jc bring of course <laughs> the ex-fiance of sharon tate who like many a man i'm sure was cucked by a hollywood director yeah, it seems that I mean I, that that the I love the party you know at the Playboy Mansion right. Mm-hmm. I love that scene because you know you get a, a taste of uh, you know kind of Steve funny. If, I mean it's just funny you know Steve McQueen kind of explaining uh, you know the the Polanski Tate relationship like you know he's a tabloid himself yeah and kind of like uh, you know like uh, I think you know I've said mythology like seven times already mm-hmm. but it is like. There, there's an obsession, you know, I, I guess part of, you know, what this movie recognizes is like part of, you know, being a part of Hollywood and like uh, and being part of Hollywood and everyone else's status. And you kind of recognize that and like, you know, something like Rick Dalton just being so enthusiastic. It's like I live next to Sharon Tate and yeah. Roman Polanski <laughs> and stuff like that. And kind of just, uh, I don't know, being around it and being in it and what's the difference of that, you know, is kind of uh, put into question and like, I don't know, just beyond like kind of the obvious uh, aesthetic pleasures of this movie. I love just uh, it's it is just kind of like Hollywood fan fiction Mm -hmm. in a way, you know what I mean? And it's Mm -hmm. and I I think that's enjoyable as someone who's familiar with the time period. Yeah, I um, at the beginning of the episode, Eddie, you talked about um, this coming out around the time, like after we had finished uh, doing the death proof episode. And that was at like a time where like I myself was like, uh, how do I feel about Tarantino now? It's been years since I've, uh, played the hits and like gone through his work. And like, I don't know, I saw this movie like maybe like six times that year (laughs) that it came out and it latched on like, obviously because of very personal, like 
aesthetic fetishization that I have for the 60s in general that I think I was able to tap into a lot. But like, I think my lingering bad feelings um, towards Tarantino were for something like Kill Bill, which I still like. Mm -hmm. But I think that has like a, a weakness of like his more like formalist and like aesthetic impulses to like rip things from other movies in a way that like at its worst in that in like Kill Bill it just feels hollow to me and like he doesn't have any like more personal or intimate moments of characters it's like that like heavy caricaturization of it and And in Kill Bill like obviously he's taking from all these martial arts movies from Japan and Hong Kong but that it's like you get the shot by shot uh, reference to a shootout from Miller's Crossing at one point. It's like he's really just throwing it all yeah, at the no, wall he's, in that movie. He's going from everywhere yeah. there and is operating it like such a manic mode that it's hard for anything to really connect. But like this is such like a deeply personal film and like the fact that like he's in the heads of the characters enough to like release a book about it. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's so much richness and affection that he has for the era, the characters just, you feel that love and personality every step of the way. And I think it like has, it creates some of the most intimate and tender moments in like a Tarantino film since like fucking Jackie Brown. Yeah. And I really love that he's able to be like incredibly self, like it, it makes sense that like, the most personal like Tarantino movie is something that's like extremely indulgent and like over the top in that way. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's fun to see the man, let it all hang out there. You get the people making fun of him for the feet stuff all the time. He's waving that flag loud and fucking proud. Oh yeah. Dirty feet too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It goes even further. I think all of the excesses and indulgences of the film are teased out even further in the book which is hilarious uh i had just read the novelization like a week ago and uh it's it also teases out the complications of the film so i think this and inglorious bastards have in common the the limits that you hit with historical revisionism and pastiche art you know something like pulp fiction or kill bill the you know the viewers might be kind of fed up at a certain point but the the text itself doesn't have a melancholy or a sadness to it that's you know uh invoked by the metatextual quality but i think this one just like licorice pizza kind of the dark underbelly of what he's so lovingly portraying he's not ignoring it you know exactly and i think the book goes even further with that it's like rick dalton's melancholy in the book is so much deeper and there's a scene um i think it's played about halfway through the movie where uh the the series lead of the pilot that rick is uh playing the heavy on this one episode lancer uh he invokes this old story he's like didn't you almost have the mcqueen role in the great escape and you see this great you know classic tarantino uh fetishization of film history where he inserts dicaprio into the great escape uh in the book that is like a recurring story that people keep asking rick dalton about (laughs) and by the end of it he's just like i did i i didn't almost fucking get the book (laughs) in the movie rather it pisses him off so much and it's like such a clear 
stand in for the the decline of that studio system too. Rick Dalton's like melancholic feeling throughout this whole thing. This is 1969. You know, New Hollywood is already taking over at this point. But the house that you know uh, the Warner Brothers and all the other studios built is collapsing, and there's some serious sadness to it. You know. Yeah, I think like I mean just readings of this that don't I think see any level of intentionality on Tarantino's behalf it's like I, I don't know how you how you could miss that yeah. because it's like he's uh, just killing hippies it's freaking reactionary there's like there's yeah. a level of it that is like okay uh Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth do have swag to them yeah uh for sure but then also it's like he like Rick Dalton has like a freak out in his trailer where he's like he got too drunk the night beforehand. And he's threatening to kill himself yeah. like just like the most pathetic like. Yeah. And I mean the Brad Pitt character. He's like a, a has-been. Yeah. And he's a like, wife killer. killer. Yeah. yeah. A wife killer. <laughs> someone who's like his wife with a shark gun <laughs> who like blackballed himself out of the industry basically yeah. just being too skeevy of a dude. You know the most heinous offense the killing of his wife. Of course. But uh, I it Not is, to mention beating up Bruce Lee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, it's funny that, like, that that's where a lot of the controversy, that, like, there was so much controversy about that. And something that's, you know, essentially nothing, just, like, kind of a distant memory or, you know, who knows, you know, a daydream even of, like, this Brad Pitt character who's, like, you know, is just basically have, have to be, like, uh, this washed-up star's assistant. And, yeah. you know, like, in the, his, you know... Um, you know, of course, they have friendship, but it's like you know. It, 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 but they're you, both losers. They're both <laughs> losers, and it's like the and it also there's like a slight conflict to, um, you know, them you know having to or like I guess not not even like Brad Pitt has kind of accepted that his dreams are deferred mm-hmm. essentially, and uh, so he has enough time to go back to the house and uh, you know. Uh, Think about, oh, remember that one time I was on set, you know, with someone that was famous or, you know, just drive around randomly, pick up hitchhikers, take them from, <laughs> they take them to Spawn Ranch. You know, meanwhile, you know, uh, we got Sharon Tate just dancing in her room, you know, yeah. I mean? it shows like it's I love the kind of like it shows the lifestyles of people in this industry where it's like Brad Pitt's got a job where it's like, fuck, I guess I'll just kind of like lay around and wait for uh um, Rick Dalton to pop up whenever he needs help or whatever. And, you know, Sharon Tate, you know, she acts, but when she is, you know, she's living uh, a fancy, you know, seems, you know, a wonderful lifestyle. Everything she does, you know, there's a sense of wonder to it. And, you know, Rick is just hung over trying to remember his lines <laughs> in like a TV show. He, he only cares about because he's in it. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's interesting to see what everyone's up to at a, you know, a noon in Hollywood. And I think the, you know, socio-political stuff of the era like Licorice Pizza comes through in the background, but it's like you, you just have to apply it to what's in the foreground. You know, you mm-hmm. get uh, that scene with Al Pacino as Marvin Schwartz, you know, uh, <laughs> telling Rick Dalton that he can get him in spaghetti westerns. And then Rick Dalton's just like so bummed about it. But in the car, you hear stuff on the radio about Vietnam and Sirhan Sirhan, you know, and it's like he's just dropping that stuff in the background for you to make of it what you will. But I think that that car ride back from that opening meeting at Musso and Frank's is so important to 
to the reading of Rick Dalton's character as having bipolar disorder, as well as this crippling alcohol addiction where he's like so down on himself and he's just like fucking crying. You know, you get Brad Pitt saying, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And like, he's just like, I'm done. My my fucking career is done. He's going to make me do these fucking WAP westerns. And then just the fact that he sees Roman Polanski as his neighbor, he's like, that's Roman Polanski. I'm one pool party away from being a star again, man. Like it, that, those mood swings are so like tragic to look back on, you know, despite how hilarious they can be in the moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's kind of what makes this whole thing elusive right there is like you couldn't become a star again or whatever you know what i mean you could Mm -hmm. uh you get invited to hang out with sharon tate you know because you know there's people just things around the corner and i guess that's that's uh i guess you know thinking about like a move like the hateful eight or whatever where um i need to revisit it i'll be honest but it's like we kind of have tarantino confined to a room and Mm -hmm. we got characters talking to each other it's like you know, that's kind of not exactly what I enjoy Tarantino for. It's like now we have this vast landscape of Los Angeles and uh, I think he makes great use of it and like his interest in all the detail. I think that's, I mean, I think that's what kind of the aesthetic uh, key is here. I mean, just honing in on details like, you know, constant uh, radio play, you know, mm-hmm. little ads on the radio. Of course, that very touching sequence of all the neon lights coming on or what i mean oh of course set to, yeah, I, yeah. out of time by yeah. rolling stones yeah. like oh my god Beautiful. i mean uh, the way my heart sank the first time i watched it because out of time is playing and you realize you're about two hours into the movie and then it shows sharon tate getting ready for that night and it's like yeah oh no are we about to see yeah. her get fucking killed like jesus christ or even just kind of like the you know lesser quote-unquote lesser scenes or you know just smaller stuff like uh Al Pantino saying that, you know, I got my cigars and I got a cognac or whatever <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, and, it, and it's just kind of like, you know, you get a nice insert shot of the nice cigars, the yeah. cognac. The all fetishization of yeah. film, oh, too, of course, God. when he talks about, yeah. you know, lacing up 35 millimeter prints of Rick Dalton movies. And you just get that, like, very few other directors mm-hmm. would put in those insert shots, those cutaways of just spooling up the projector. You know, yeah. just like uh, I, I read a negative review on Letterboxd. You can't call it a review. It's a sentence that gave it a <laughs> one star that said it's edited like a Family Guy episode. And I think, the, yeah, the, the amount of cutaways and flashbacks in this would make Seth MacFarlane cream his fucking jeans. <laughs> but the way they're utilized are masterful. And this yeah. has been something Tarantino's been working at his whole career. There's always cutaways and flashbacks. And I think this is like the best use of them for Mm -hmm. sure i mean when he's in the meeting with marvin schwarz and he talks about you know the flamethrower and you get that great cutaway to him training with the Mm flamethrower and he's like anyway we could turn this down a little bit and this prop guy's like it's a (laughs) (laughs) flamethrower. just so fucking funny no yeah and it's and it is like these cutaways are used just to focus on you know specific um you know kind of like fetishistic things that he like i mean just even thinking about just that one scene in like musco and Fredericks, it's just like the drinks that let both of them order yeah. you know what mm-hmm. i mean you know pit just a nice thick bloody mary or yeah. whatever with a big stock of celery in it you know it's just it's a wonder to look at i think there's like eight cutaways in that musso and frank's meeting it's <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, 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 uh. 
Also, I love yeah uh, Marvin Schwartz being uh, Schwartz. Sorry, yeah. uh, being introduced by the hood ornament on his car. That tracking <laughs> shot. Oh, so fucking sick, man. Um, then we get some more great intros, like the Manson family girls dumpster diving. Uh, you know, all is one. They're chanting, and you get that great shot of them walking in front of a mural where it's like the one time the anamorphic distortion of the film really uh, kicks in, and it's like totally bent out of shape, and it's so weird them walking in front of that mural and the the first shot of them also like out of focus walking up that hill looks like it's from a 70s horror movie too yeah i mean this this is so dumb what i'm about to say but it reminds me of uh something i heard colin coward say earlier this week (laughs) where uh he was talking about how aaron Rodgers is special compared to being uh like uh talented or important and he's like you walk around la there's a lot of very, you know, good people, talented people, but you know, there's some that are just, just special or whatever. Aaron Rodgers special. He also, he also shout out Ted Sarandos or whatever. The CEO of Netflix is one of them. But it's just like I, I think that idea of like, um, you know, the kind of like the, you know, when people move to LA, oh, I ran into like, you know, I ran into Sean Penn. You know, he's yeah. at uh, Yogurt Land getting uh, <laughs> with his new his new twenty five year old wife. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that or it, or even you know stuff like uh stuff that like kind of is outside you know on the outskirts like the manson family just walking around digging through the trash and like i think tarantino cherishes that kind of like quote-unquote random encounters or whatever i mean even mm-hmm. just like when uh that brief scene when like we get to see manson and he's like oh, I, was, I was looking for someone you know yeah. what i mean and it's like that's you know that's when you'd run into him not when he's like uh you know, organizing the Sharon Tate murder or exactly. whatever. You know what I mean? You're going to run into him just at a random encounter. Um, Let's see. What was I going to say? Oh, so also I just want to talk about, you know, the the visual style of this movie. I mean, the, the use of those two houses, like in that wide open space between them and the craning that he does back and forth between the two houses is just incredible. Obviously, as we said, there's a lot of insert shots. Uh, I feel like the camera movement is all like there's some classic Tarantino, like uh, swinging around the camera with the dialogue, you know. Uh, but for the most part, it's a little more restrained. I feel like the compositions are a little more measured, mm-hmm. uh, and just like the the film stock that he's using. I don't know, man. There's something just magical about it. Like those shots where the camera is mounted on the back of cars as people are driving through the Hollywood Hills is just like incredible. Uh, also, just like the pure dustiness uh, of Spawn Ranch is so well captured there. Uh, I, I just love it. And of course, the the dustiness of feet in all of that setup. Just everyone has gross feet in this movie. It's and like, that, for a guy with a foot fetish, it's like, clean it up a little. But I guess that's I mean, what he likes. Yeah, he yeah. likes those dirty souls, man. Come as you are. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, lo- I love the Spawn Ranch sequence because it, it has almost like a like a segment in a true crime TV show type mm-hmm. feel is like Brad Pitt's like, what's going on here? You know what I mean? And it's a good little kind of, in such a short amount of time, the passage of time of, you know, how things operate, you know what I mean? They used to shoot Westerns here. Now they're shooting less Western. So now the hippies take over. Then, you know, fast forward 50 years, like, well, we invade Iraq. So we got to make a lot of uh, Iraq shows and movies yeah. at Spawn Ranch now. But yeah, uh, um, yeah it's true. That's <laughs> something to chew on. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> but it, it is like kind of uh, like, like, I love how, you know, it's not something that's emphasized, but it is like 
Brad Pitt's irrelevancy seems to have happened so fast. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's a, you know, I think when uh, he's in the car rejecting blowjobs and demanding IDs Mm -hmm. from, um, you know, one of the Manson girls, you know, you know, it's kind of getting poked at. It's like, oh, you you used to shoot westerns there and stuff. It's like, well, you watch that stuff, you know, probably like five years ago. But yeah. it's like it's already, you know, the times are changing. Exactly. Yeah. She she says, you know, you shot m- movies twenty years ago. There, he's like, well, TV eight years ago. Yeah. But, you know, really, to the young people at that time, it's the same shit. They're yeah. they're not watching those westerns anymore. Mm-hmm. That that leads me to what those Manson family kids thought about him. You know, when they uh, when when Rick and Cliff returned from Rome uh, and uh, they have their one last bender together, and then the that night where. Charles Manson orders the family to go murder everyone in the Tate Polanski house uh, because Terry Melcher used to live there and for no other reason than his one connection to the music industry used to live in that house. Uh, they're interrupted by Rick Dalton, you know, who's pissed off that there's fucking hippies uh, in his little cul-de-sac and smoke it while high off an acid cigarette. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> oh, Cliff Booth is high off the acid oh, yeah, cigarette. I was yeah. their He's just trashed off margaritas. Yeah, just having a nice margarita. Yeah, yeah. So funny, just him carrying <laughs> up a picture of margaritas out to their car. <laughs> uh, but then when they go back, it's like, damn, that was Rick Dalton. That's Jake Cahill from Bounty Law. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, and, you know, th- we get that moment where they're talking about, like, look, man, we all grew up on murder. If you grew up on TV, you grew up on murder. So let's teach them a lesson. <laughs> and it's so funny how undeveloped of a political thought that is. And, yeah, you could say, like... That's the thing. Some of the bad faith criticism of this movie is like that the hippies weren't given enough credit when it's like they're brainwashed with acid and Charles Manson. <laughs> like, if anything, like they're a little too smart for their own good. Uh, yeah. Hey, man, they were rounding up the pedophiles. <laughs> they heard Polanski live there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so they realize, okay, and, and this is, you know, the, the cathartic, if you will, action climax of this movie. They realize, let's murder a former you know a uh, tv cowboy and that is when we get the scene that probably caused the most controversy in this movie as the violence of tarantino's movies have caused uproar in the past uh the hippie killing escapade where brad pitt and his dog uh go to town just on slamming women's heads into picture frames yep. phones whatever uh, yeah, and it's it's a brutal, gruesome scene. And when I saw it, my audience was fucking hooting and hollering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. I gotta be honest, Tarantino knows how to shoot a fucking violent action scene. Mm-hmm. Like, he, you know, for as much strength as he has in dialogue and as much restraint as he shows throughout this movie, the cathartic violence is always going to be there. And uh, whether it's the movie palace burning down in Inglorious Bastards or even the TV show and movie within the movie violence of like Operation Dynamite in this one where you get that crazy <laughs> car crash, um, the violence is always going to be incredibly propelling and just like incredibly indulgent as well and people said some insane things about this violent scene and i will just say that it is a very violent scene where uh rick dalton gets his uh flamethrower from the 13 fists of mccluskey uh out of his tool shed and burns a hippie to a crisp (laughs) 
I mean, it, it is, it is like, it, it's also, it's funny because it, it, in one way he's kind of giving the people what they want. Oh, yeah. But also kind of, uh, like I, it seems like a lot of you know the eggheads. That's something you know they yeah. are quick to critique Tarantino with. But it's like, you know, because there was it's funny just gauging you know the normal people's reaction to this movie. I had like friends you know they don't give a fuck about sixties Hollywood. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, and they still like that. They're like, yeah, the best scene is when he fucked everyone up. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's just some fun, inventive, you know, violence that comes with it. You know what I mean? And it's. You know, he like you said, it's something he knows how to do. So why not use that rather than uh, I don't know coming to a very extreme, dramatic scene or something like yeah. that. He he knows how to flex the muscles that he has. And I mean, just isn't like obviously like Tate in this movie is shown with like such like legitimate affection and like I don't know like whether Tarantino actually had any like real affinity for her as an actress or just mm-hmm. like kind of in this like what she represents but just like i don't know it makes like with all that tate represents to tarantino it makes sense that he has this like very justified rage at people that like took that away from uh, took that away from her and and it's funny because you'd never really heard pro manson (laughs) children (laughs) before you never really heard that it's like oh these these Manson kids were just misguided or, you know what I mean? It is, it is kind of, kind of opened up another debate entirely, I guess, which is funny. And I think, you know, there was also the debate of like how many lines Sharon Tate had or whatever like that, or uh, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate had. I thought it was Anna Paquin in uh, the Irishman. (laughs) I think they're both (laughs) those. Uh, But her character is so interior, you know? And it's like the, the adoring that his camera has for her, like that playboy party where she's, in yellow it's almost like her outfit it's like the spotlight is on oh, her yeah. mm-hmm. the the way that in a wide shot with 40 people that you can focus on margot robbie as sharon tate in that scene is that should say everything mm-hmm. but then the amount of time he spends with her watching her own movie uh in that theater where across the street from where we saw licorice pizza uh, is just like incredible and so interior and you just are like are, are you just zoning out or are you thinking about like what her character must be thinking about because mm-hmm. it, I, I don't know the people that mm-hmm. complained about a lack of depth in Sharon Tate's character in this movie is fucking ridiculous yeah um but Anyway, so her life is spared uh, in this revisionist take, and we get one final crane shot to, you know, uh, the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, all of these crane shots between these two houses. The last one, of course, is the overhead shot from the heavens, uh, where it's not quite Sharon Tate's time yet, and we see Jay Sebring invite Rick Dalton over, and Sharon comes out and gives him a big hug, uh, welcome, welcomes him to the house, and... Uh, after all of this insane violence and, uh, you know, the the last night that Rick and Cliff are going to spend together because, of course, now Cliff is married and, uh, you know, doesn't need uh, Cliff around. Did I say Cliff is married? Rick is married, doesn't need Cliff around. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just uh, it's so, like, casually transcendent. I, mm-hmm. You know, Sharon Tate in that white and blue football jersey looking like fucking... Uh, uh, Sybil Shepherd and the Heartbreak Kid poster. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, maybe that's even a nod to like what she could have done in the future. I know Tarantino's a big Heartbreak Kid fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the types of roles she could have had throughout the seventies if her life was spared. And it's just, it's a beautiful ending. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it is like she embodies kind of like Hollywood perfection, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And whether or not that was like the real thing, because I I thought about like someone like Rosenbaum or like reacting very negatively to this movie. And I think maybe, maybe he was like, I remember the 60s, they weren't like that. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Maybe that's like kind of, and that's, I mean, a simple, you know what I mean? I'm sure he thinks things through a little bit more than that, but it's like, but Tarantino loves this kind of vision of, you know, Hollywood perfection in, in, in like, you know, this movie is obviously a big, you know, shrine to it. And like I, the ending so touching. Cause it is like, it's maintained, you know what I mean? This, yeah. we get to see, you know, Sharon Tate lives, even though, you know, that didn't happen in real life. And, you know, the, the sanctity and, you know, a respect for Hollywood is, you know, it's still strong or whatever, or it still lives on somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and you just, it, you could really feel how much he, he loves this, you know what I mean? And that's, and, and I think that's, that's the key of what makes it good, right? It's yeah. like, whether it's like, I think it is probably a little bit reactionary to mm-hmm. a certain extent, but it is like, that's, that's, that's it's, what he loves. It's sincere. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's the most, it's, uh, it's so earnest coming from yeah. him and especially like when doing something that's like this meta like pastiche style that mm-hmm. he does oftentimes you can sort of get lost in the mix there and have something that feels a little bit colder but this is just so like i don't know just so honest mm-hmm. any final thoughts on this one before we wrap it up with a bullet rating jt how about you go first i'm gonna go five bullets on this it's, it's one of my all-time favorites uh I look forward to rewatching it many more times in years to come. But this, like Licorice Pizza, are just like movies that are like exploding off the frame with like detail and just like every little aesthetic decision matters and all of this stuff like shows like a clear affection that uh both like pta and especially like tarantino with once upon a time like have for these worlds Mm -hmm. and just like there's so many like just fun cutaways and asides in this that add like beautiful character detail and like make something that's like so affectionate but like tarantino like well he's kind of a dumb guy he's not stupid like he is aware of like the negative aspect Mm -hmm. of this and there's like a looming sadness and like violence that like also is taken into account in this very loving portrait of a time period of like film in general. And, uh, I don't know. It's just such a masterpiece like this time. Uh, one final font I was left with when watching this at the new Bev is just, uh, just envisioning old Quentin just rolling up to the new Beverly, much like Sharon Tate does, takes off his uh, takes off his shoes in in the new Bev, kicks up his feet, and just uh, watches people enjoy his own movie. Didn't we get uh, insider information that he didn't he kind of do that exact thing when uh, the new Bev reopened? So, I, was it was it Nate said yeah, that yeah, he I didn't have his shoes his on? Shoes off? Maybe he was wearing some sandals. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think he's gotten to live that fantasy. So I'm happy. Good for, for him. Good, Good for, for him. him. Um, I'm gonna go five bullets as well. This is a great, amazing movie, and like kind of I don't know, takes all the stuff I like about Tarantino, kind of like amplifies it. And yeah, I, I guess it's it's just the affection he has for all this stuff, you know, and acknowledges, you know, I think people like 
they see something like the negative aspects of their movie and it's like he he displays them he doesn't quite uh you know what i mean bring down a judgmental hammer on them and i guess that's why people you know be like well he's like endorsing this or whatever you know it's like i mean those arguments are so fucking boring at this point that it's like it's not even worth engaging but um so yeah fuck that you, you, you go. Uh, I'm going five bullets as well, bumping this up from the four and a half I had initially given it. I think it's only gotten better with time, and I think I, I, I highly recommend the novelization. I think it like really fleshes out a lot of the darker underbelly. I think one last thing from the book that I'll reference yeah. is that uh, to talk about the aftermath of the hippie killing escapade in Rick Dalton's career, it does say that he became an icon for Richard Nixon's silent majority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like it revitalized his career and he would go on Johnny Carson to talk about it and stuff, which is <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and I feel like the book is just like, if you take the, the either bad faith or just like more measured, but negative critiques of the movie, uh, it's like he read them and was like, yeah, and what of it you know (laughs) and fuck you too like it's it's amazing and um i mean the book i wouldn't say is nearly as fucking great as the movie but it's really impressive how good it is it's like so i i can't wait to read another book of his i i really think he has a uh an interesting future as a novelist but there's just so many great scenes in this that we haven't gotten to touch on. Sure. Uh, you know, obviously Rick and Cliff watching uh, Rick's FBI episode together oh my God. is amazing. All of the movies and shows within the movie that Tarantino shot are so great and like so fetishistic of like the culture of that era. So many great needle drops. Um, I don't know. It's just like that you could lose yourself just discussing this for hours. It's my favorite Tarantino film and uh yeah five bullets so with that being said let's move on to the email segment everyone's second it. favorite segment right uh we got quite a few today what I, about I, money malcolm i was gonna say money I, malcolm definitely i <laughs> maybe i don't know if i'd call myself a fan of this podcast but <laughs> i'm a participant and i always love a money malcolm true i i would i would have to go through all the segments and kind of rank them i i still have to iron out my thoughts there but Eddie, it seems like you got an email. Yeah, read us, read us a fucking email. We got email. quite a long one. You know what? Yeah. I'm going to save some of them because we're already running pretty long and like yeah. people don't email that often. We've been saving some up. So, yeah. uh, Valerie, next week we'll get yours since it is a long three-part email. Uh, we we yeah. will do the three shorter emails this time. First one is from Kyle and it says, Hi, fellas. With the pod winding down, it got me thinking. If each of you had to choose a person still living to take your place on the show and carry the extended <laughs> clip mantle after your time passes, who would you pick? Dumb hypotheticals aside, I've loved the show and wish you all best of luck in your future endeavors. We're all very proud. Kyle. Nice. Nice. Kyle, I'd pick you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of a funny Roman Polanski. Roman. I guess he's still kicking, right? Uh, Roman's still out there. He's still. He got like the French Oscar or something in 2019. He's, yeah. He's out you there know, killing he's still, it. Yeah, he's still doing um, things. I guess. Uh, well, I don't want that to seem like that's an approximation of true. my voice on the show. That's not yeah. what. Yeah, his I voice just think is it, much more manly. Uh, you <laughs> fucker. <laughs> My pick is Howard Stern. I mean, I, I want was, quality broadcasting. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Don Imus. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, Howard he's Stern, dead. Don Imus, Joe Rogan. Rush, did Rush Limbaugh die? Is he, he's <laughs> no. also dead. Uh, 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 Fuck, dude. All the all all our legends have left us. Gutfield. Gutfield. <laughs> 
So yeah, Howard like, Stern, Roman Polanski, and Gutfield. <laughs> I think I would, uh, yeah, Gutfielder, yeah, that's, I think that's a good approximation. Next one's from Sam. Uh, it says, hello, Extended Clip Podcast. I just knew I couldn't let the podcast end without getting in at least one email. Let me first just say thank you for all, thank you all for making me laugh so much this past year or so since I've been listening to the show. Hoping the best for the three of you. One little question. I notice you guys occasionally mentioning books and papers on cinema. What are some of your favorite works of film theory and criticism? I've been reading some basic stuff like Andrew Saris's classic The American Cinema, as well as Tag Gallagher's book on John Ford, recommended to me by the other essential writer whose work I'm fond of, the one and only Neil Bahadur. I was wondering if there's any other works you'd consider essential to understanding the cinema. Thanks again for doing the show and helping me see movies in a new light. And thanks for your time, Sam Loveland. I don't know if I've read any (laughs) (laughs) film thing. I'm trying to think if if I've actually read any. I mean, you mentioned some big ones there. Obviously, Andrew Saris's The American Cinema is Mm -hmm. like the urtext to classical Hollywood auteurism. Um, You know, uh, I don't know, man. Fucking... uh, what was I going to say? Uh, the Poetics of Cinema by David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson. Um, you know, Jonathan Rosenbaum, uh, uh, Placing Movies. Uh, also his autobiography, uh, Moving Places. Uh, not really a film theory text, but it's pretty essential to me. Yeah, I, I remember reading, uh, what's the, like, Movies and in Politics and Movies, mm-hmm. that one. I read a good amount of that one. I enjoyed That's a good it one. I like Godard on Godard just because it is, like, uh, film theory just meets mania. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, he's just, insane. Just kind of like scattered brain. And like, I've always kind of like felt like that's kind of, I don't know, been my approach kind of just embrace the scattered brainness of stuff. So I feel like I've always respected Godard's voice as a critic, but like, I'm going to be honest. I haven't really read that much. Okay. I mean, yeah. in terms of like big shit, it's yeah. just like, I feel like I've read less, but I just follow my interest. I mean, I think that's like, guide yourself by like what you want to learn more about yeah. like i know uh, yeah. what is cinema by andre bazan there's a handful of like pretty essential essays in there i i mean i guess i always the, i just read felipe furtado and armand white <laughs> 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 those, those are kind of my two go-tos at the, so and i'm sure i'm sure listeners of uh this podcast are already hip to those guys yeah so. Any uh, any uh, recommendations in particular, JT? You were just um, reading that Late well, Godard book. I, yeah, I read uh, a really good uh, book was Late Godard and the Possibilities of Cinema by Daniel Morgan. I'll just read off some uh, some recent movie books that I read. Uh, Cinematic Appeals, The Experience of New Movie Technologies by Ariel Rogers. That was really cool, like talking about like, I don't know, the transition from film to digital and like the different like textural textural experiences of digital um what else here i read uh making meaning by boardwell as well i don't know just classic just read some damn books yeah read some read boardwell your, read some rosenbaum <laughs> some dave care you know uh hey pauline kale i lost it at the movies kiss kiss bang bang those are fun reads that's a that's a sick title i lost it at the movies that mm-hmm. is a good we yeah. should have named yeah. this podcast i lost it at the movies <laughs> i guess i like a uh, melissa anderson to just thinking mm-hmm. of random critics i read she has a yeah. book on inland empire coming out right yeah i know i think i think i might call. we'll pre-recommend that one <laughs> little christmas <laughs> gift uh recommendation for exactly. all the film fans in your life <laughs> uh last but not least for this week bennett glace says hi guys Figured I'd finally write in because I just walked out of the delightful licorice pizza. Hey, 
We just reviewed that. And boy, am I hungry for another slice. Loved the movie, but I tell you, what a crowd. The guy next to me chewed with his mouth wide open the whole time. And get this, he had e-cigarettes for legs. Wow, that's a joke for like five people. Uh, But if you know, you know. Uh, And I will do no more explaining there. All jokes aside, I just wanted to say thanks for the great pod and all the opportunities to both laugh and stroke my chin over the years. You boys will be missed. <laughs> this will be hanging up the old cans. Are there any movie podcasts you'd recommend? I'm just going to answer that now. No, just re-listen to us. The clip has been a rare highlight in the dismal world of film podcasts, and I'm sure many listeners would appreciate your thoughts on worthwhile ex-competitors to check out. Oh. I used to be so starved for conversations about movies that I listened to David Ehrlich's podcast. I am not going back. Also, Indica or Sativa? Gotta ask why I still got the chance. Um, well, I mean, our friends of the podcast do, that do podcasts, listen yeah. to those. Listen to Catalyst and Witness. Listen to Sleezoids. Listen to the Important Cinema Club. You know, those are classics. Yeah. Er, uh, Eric's Gauntlet. Oh, the, the Gauntlet. Gauntlet. Yeah, How could I forget? Um, I don't smoke weed anymore. Nice. Uh, I go, well, I mean, you could still answer that question. <laughs> um, and he's uh, winking at yeah. me. Now. <laughs> Let's just say I'm taking a hiatus. Uh, I'm, I'm team Indica. Indica. <laughs> Indica? You're yeah. a big Kid Cudi kid guy? Cuddy. I'm more of a, yeah. It's less about the strain and more about the song you choose with it. And there's, there's no better and, song to smoke weed to than Kid Cudi's Day and Night. <laughs> So uh, if you're ever rolling one up, twisting one, as they like to say, spark that up, play, press play, and you'll be transported to another space. The lonely podcaster <laughs> seems to free his mic at night. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I think Kid Cudi talks about movies, probably. He's talking... Like, I bet I'd love to be the first guy to show Get him in uh, the criterion closet. Yeah, yeah. Like, show Kid Cudi the holy mountain. You know what I mean? That might... You might... <laughs> that, that might get you some cred for, you know, a couple of years or something. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of Extended Clip. We didn't come at you with a podcast last week, and that's why we went very long this week. Now, we only have a few episodes left. I know, look, I I had some personal uh, matters to attend to. I'll just leave it at that. Um, So we're not going to finish off with as many episodes as I had previously intended. I'm sorry, but... We're coming down the home stretch right now. We're doing one more double feature from each of us and a grand finale, and that's it. Yep. Four more episodes of Extended Clip. That That's it, baby. Um, so for our last round of double features, I think Malcolm is starting us off next week. Malcolm, do you have your double feature picked out? Yeah, man. And I'm, you know, with the amount of revenue that the podcast rakes in, people must think we're going crazy <laughs> to shut it down. So I picked a double feature <laughs> to... Uh, Reflect that. We're going safe. We're playing it safe. Safe by Todd Haynes. Okay. Ooh. And Hell yeah. uh, Shot Corridor by Sam Fuller. Um, yeah, a movie. I mean, a movie's mo- about being sick. Yeah, <laughs> movie's about being fucking insane like us. The only uh, <laughs> officially mentally ill people <laughs> in, in the film community. And uh, I, I just wanted to make something to ref- reflect that for all you, you know, any any blue check uh, film critici- criticist you see on there, they probably claim they have mental illness. They don't actually have it. They're not real. They're, not, they're, they're feigning those for attention, unlike us who actually have it. So safe and shot corridor, we're going crazy, bro. As the auteurs behind Matchbox 20 once said, I'm not crazy, I'm just a little unwell. So we'll see you next week.